right. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Dustin. If we've not met, I just want to say welcome for, uh, and thank you for coming to LifePoint. Uh, I'm a campus life pastor here at LifePoint Church in Westerville. Um, and just real quick, if you're a guest with us or if you hadn't had a chance to do this yet, if you could take out your phone and open up your camera app and throw it on the QR code uh, on the scene in front of you, that'll just take you to a landing page. If you could just fill out that guest information card, let us know you're here. What we'll do is we'll make a $5 donation to a local ministry of your choosing just to say thanks for being here. Uh, we are super thankful and grateful that you chose to spend your morning with us. Um, as a church, we're in a series called Under the Sun, and we're walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes means teacher, and King Solomon is the one holding session for us, right? Uh, this is a phenomenal book. I hope that you've been able to follow along with the devotions that we have on our Drivecast and our app and, and just been reading personally because I mean, there's a lot to learn. Like even if, you've, if you love Jesus and you've been following God for 10 years, there's a lot here. Like, if you're still skeptical and not sure where things stand, man, there's so much here. It should grab our attention no matter where we are. Because this is what Solomon has done. First, he took notice of his heart, of his soul. And he's like, man, my heart and soul is thirsting after meaning and purpose. Like, I can't turn it off. And then he, he looks around and he goes, man, I'm not alone. Everyone has this thirst built in them. They want ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose to be found. They, they crave it. We crave it. So then he starts to study where everybody goes to try and satisfy that thirst, to find meaning. And what he found was people claimed, hey, you don't need God to satisfy that thirst. You can find that under the sun, right? God would be above the sun. They claimed, hey, you can find ultimate meaning and purpose in life without God in the picture, under the sun. And research tells us we look in the very same places that they looked. Pleasure, whatever feels good. Your career, your work, relationships. And Solomon's response to them was stunning. He said, okay, game on. I will test your hypothesis. I will test it. I've got so many resources to throw at it. I will leave no stone unturned. I've got the checkbook to do it. You know, his adjusted net worth for today in today's terms was over $2 trillion. Like, I don't even know how many zeros that is. That's a lot of zeros, right? Like, we don't deal with those many zeros on a daily basis. Like, I heard it put, like, if you think about a million seconds, that's like 12 days, right? So make the jump to a billion. You go from 12 days to almost 32 years. And then you jump to a trillion, that's like 32,000 years. It's just crazy. And that's how crazy rich and how much resources he had to throw towards this hypothesis. You say you don't need God to consider God to find ultimate meaning? Okay. I will go further in testing that than anybody has ever gone before. And that's what he did. So first on his list was pleasure. Okay, whatever feels good, do it. 700 wives, 300, con 300 concubines. Through parties with 20,000 people that lasted a week straight. Like, he's going hard, right? He, I mean, we, we dabble in pleasure. We, we give JV attempts at comparison with what this guy does, right? Like, he didn't want at the, end, at the end of this test, he didn't want there to be any stone unturned for somebody to say or for him to say to himself, you just didn't go hard enough. So he tests pleasure. Next, he looked at work, whatever he could achieve with his hands. Am I the only one that after doing some yard work, you kind of step back, I step back and like, Look at it, I'm like, man, I feel, I feel real good about myself. I just mowed for 30 minutes and I'm just enjoying the fruit of my toil. I hate doing yard work, but I love to look at what my work, what my hands have accomplished. This guy planted parks on a national park scale and gardens that you and I can't even fathom. 
And so sometimes we want the result of our work to yield uh, a dream house, right? We want the work that we produce and, and, and the output to be the material possessions that we have. Solomon had over 150,000 workers build his house and it took over 13 years. Talk about that. That's, that's crazy. Or maybe for some of us, it's to pay off our mortgage, which often takes a pretty big chunk of our career to do. Or if we're really lucky, we get that second house. He had a house built for each one of his 700 wives. So he's just paying off that 700 mortgage, just going, yeah, I did this. I did it all on a scale that you and I will never achieve. And at the end of it all, he said this, none of it fulfilled. None of it fulfilled me. You and I, we trick ourselves into thinking, man, if I could just get further down the path, get a new version, get more of what I already have, then that'll satisfy. He goes, listen, I've been down that path, further down that path than you will ever travel. It's the wrong path. At the end, he says, the best that under the sun could give me was vanity, which is this Hebrew word hevel, which best translated means breath or vapor. So standing outside on a cold Ohio morning in the winter, you breathe. He says, the best my heart got was trying to grab a hold of that. And it was meaningless. There was nothing of substance there. And he implores us throughout Ecclesiastes, look above the sun. That's the only thing. God is the only thing that I've ever felt and ever found that has satisfied what my heart is after. So he's imploring us to look above the sun. Solomon says the good news is God offers us a full life in an empty world. And as we get into chapter seven, Solomon kind of takes his break from describing the past or vanity and starts to give us some practical everyday wisdom. It reads very much like Proverbs, which is great news. Like following God, absolutely, as we just sang about, I mean, it's eternity with him. Absolutely, following God and making a decision to follow Christ impacts our eternity, but it's not just our eternity. Like God, there's benefits and wisdom in walking every day with the Lord. And so if you're trying to figure out your life and aspects of your life, this is good news. And as Solomon starts to impart wisdom to us, he says at least three things. One, wisdom sees value, it finds value in woefulness. Even in woefulness, wisdom sees value. Second, wisdom sees wrongness, even when others see rightness. And lastly, wisdom grows in humble hearts. So first things first, wisdom sees value even in woefulness. So Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verses one through six and 10. Solomon says, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of fasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. And at the end, verse 10, he says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. So he starts off with saying, hey, a good name is better than a fine perfume. It's actually a play on words, name and perfume are one letter off in Hebrew. But he says, a perfume is great. It has value but it can really only beautify the external. Similarly, there are things that you and I can do to make ourselves more attractive, right? I don't know if it's relevant anymore. Like, do kids still say, we got enough youth in the room, like your drip, like your outfit, right? Like how you look, 
your clothes, your hair, your appearance, your house, your car. There's things externally we can do to look good. But Solomon says, who cares? Who cares how put together you look, how, how good you look, how good you're projecting if when your name is mentioned, people associate it with something ugly or shallow? What does the, your name, the totality of your life amount to? Do you have integrity? Do you have character? Is the way that you love your spouse, raise your kids, work hard at your job, give honor to your name, even, even when, maybe in a worldly sense, you're not advancing? The majority of the world puts effort into the external, not to the internal. And Solomon says, man, there's wisdom in doing this. Okay, so most of us probably don't have a problem with Solomon saying that, right? But he goes on to say, the day of your death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go into the house of mourning than feasting. Frustration is better than laughter. I mean, what? Maybe he took the party in a little too hard and there's a couple cards short of a deck. Like maybe he's, he's writing this when he's older. And, you know, I have people in my life, my family, that they start to say things when they get older that I'm like, I don't understand what you're saying really completely. I literally, this past uh, football season, I was talking to people in my family who, let's just say, were in their golden years, and they were arguing, like literally debating with me that Ryan Shazier was the best quarterback Ohio State's ever had. I'm like, dude didn't play offense. Like, what are you talking about? And I'm about to like step in and I try to correct them. I'm just like, you know what? They've earned this. I just nod silently and just next nod. So is this where Solomon is? When he says stuff like this, you and I just go, just nod silently and dismiss it and step over it? Or is he trying to say something else? He's saying that even in the most woeful situations in life, wisdom can be found. Our life seems to be filled with difficult situations, difficult people, things that make us feel like we're in over our head. And when life is filled with those types of situations, most often people try to shake a fist at God. But he's saying, no, no, no. Think about these difficult things differently. Wisdom will, be, will see the value of things and, search, and circumstances that we'd rather just not experience. So let's break down what he says. Verse one, the day of death being better than the day of birth. All right, the day of birth, it's all about potential. I have three kids, you know, I remember weeping over them as they were born, just praying and just hoping for like all that their life had in store for them. The day of death, though, for the child of God is all about fulfillment literally entering into the very thing that we were created for. It said that, when, you, that you, when you're born, you start dying, right? Well, for the believer, the child of God who's been born again, the moment you die, your eternal life starts. I heard a pastor talk about this passage, and he just kind of balked at the idea um, and the things that you and I say when people that we know are taken from us too early. Like, we, we tend to lament the things that they were robbed of doing instead of celebrating the things that they got to do and the blessings that they did experience. I mean, his, his conclusion was this borderline blasphemous for us to do this, that we, we, we focus on all that and lament instead of celebration. So what he said he did was he started to make a list uh, for his family to read when he died, when his time came. And what he said was, this is my don't cry for me list. And so it reads like, don't cry for me. I've loved the, the love of my life. Don't cry for me. I've been called daddy by the most amazing kids. Don't cry for me. I've seen a sunrise on a beach. 
don't cry for me, I've ate a perfectly cooked steak. Right? And so as he lives life and he experiences the blessings of God, he adds lines to that, that list. But he says, I always leave the last line the same. Don't cry for me, I'm home. Solomon says, death? It's the beginning of an eternal life with God and I'll take it. So there's wisdom to be found even in this woefulness. In verse two, he goes on, he says, better to go in a house of mourning instead of the house of feasting. The house of mourning refers to a funeral and the house of feasting of, of a celebration, of a party. He's saying wise people walk into funerals and they mourn along with everybody else. But they also see the value and they use those moments to be introspective and look at their own life and where they stand with God. There are things that God shows us through sorrow and sadness that teach us more than laughter ever can. Wise people lay it to heart, as the verse says. The house of feasting is great. It's a blast, but nobody thinks deeply about life when you're concerned about having a good time. Solomon says, I've been to a ton of parties, but man, it's in the funerals that I grew the most. There's wisdom in the woefulness. In verse four, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning and the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. So if your heart is in the house of mourning and you consider the end of your life, and allow that to change your perspective and what you do now, man, those are wise thoughts. You're in good company. But the, on the other hand, the fool doesn't want anything to do with that. The fool won't go there. The fool would rather be in the house of mirth. And mirth was an anesthetic that they used to numb out back then. So when sad times come, sorrow comes, frustration, stress comes in, man, rather than wade into the deep end of the pool where you can actually work and grow and stuff gets turned up and you deal with it, man, the fool just numbs out. I'll run to relationships, I'll run to Netflix, I'll run to substances, alcohol. What, I just don't want to feel and I don't want to deal with it. That's the fool. And Solomon says the fool is a bad doctor of their soul. Bad doctors just treat pain. They're not concerned with a cure. And that's what he's talking about. In verse five, it's better for someone to hear the rebuke of the wise than to sing the song of fools. Songs are great, right? I mean, who doesn't love a good song? Who loves a good rebuke? <laughs> it's like nobody likes it. it it's things. It, they're not fun. It's not fun. It's maybe even woeful to get rebuked, to be called out on your stuff. But wise people see the value of a friend lovingly letting us know that they see a problem, and then they show us a mirror. One of the th things Solomon is most grateful for is people around him that are friends, that care enough to get dirty with him in his life and tell him what's wrong. Praise Jesus for those types of friends. Have you, do you have those types of friends? Like, have you had them in seasons? They're not easy to cultivate and build. But man, what a blessing it is from God to have friends that engage with us on deep levels. Fools will put people around them that sing songs to them while they march towards disaster. So what kind of friends are we inviting into our lives. In verse six, this one is especially hard. Um, the crackling, like crackling thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. What he's, here, what he's saying here is it's possible to be like thorns under a pot on fire and laugh about it. Wise men and women don't do that. If you think about how many marriages we've heard about, 
we're in this room, you smell smoke, you see the start of a fire, and instead of saying, I'm on fire, we say, it's, it's, it's all right, I got this, I've got this under control. And we end up getting burned alive. How many times would that secret sin that you're struggling with been a burden that others could have actually helped out with and, and stepped into that have now become chains that you just can't just seem to break free from? Because you didn't cry out, fire, I'm on fire. Are we on fire? Are you on fire? I, I think we know it. I think you can smell the smoke. Does something own you? Is something falling apart? Are there shackles? Is there smoke that you smell? God's word and God's people are meant to be an invaluable resource to you. We have men's groups, women's groups, family groups where the fires that you're experiencing have been experienced. There's counseling, whatever it is. Wise people don't laugh and treat it as trivial. They do something about it. Take a step. Decide if you listen to Solomon, God's word. Verse 10, he, he says, towards the end of the section, he says, say not, were not the formal days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now, this one speaks to me because I am incredibly nostalgic. I always look back longingly on the past, right? And I, I'm working on this. I'm working on it. Like, for seven years, we lived in Pittsburgh doing a church plant, right? And so the first time we visit, after moving away back to Westerville, um, I'm like, hey, honey, let's drive past our old house. And she's like, why? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to, like, drive past it and remember and, like, just, you know, when we were there. And so I drive back, and my old neighbor's outside, and she's, like, like looking at me, our car. Like, she recognizes us, and I'm just speed away. Um, and then it's weird because it's a cul-de-sac, so she has to watch me come back. Um, <laughs> but... Like, I, that's my thing. And, and my wife and I, I literally told my wife this. Man, remember back when they were, our kids were between one and three, and we had this house, and things just seemed easier back then? And a lot of us probably have those situations where we look back on the past where things were easier. We had less stress, less responsibility, more freedom. Man, we had more fun, like college or, you know, whatever the years were, where you were more physically capable. Like, we always look back and we're like, man, I could do more when I was younger. Like, I don't know what it is for you. But Solomon's saying, spiritually, it's hard to move forward when you're always looking backward. Most times we wish, when we wish that the present looked like the past, it creates within us this dissatisfaction with the present, with the here and now. And it blinds us from what God is actually trying to do, still trying to do now in our lives. Learn from the past, absolutely. Be thankful, for sure, but live in the present. I mean, C.S. Lewis said it, there are far, far better things ahead than anything we leave behind. God is at work now. We can hope and pray still for better things to come. And this is true as a church. I mean, amen? One of the things we as a staff team do and pray for and hold to and cling to is that no matter what building we used to be in, right, no matter how things were so much easier when we were a certain size, who used to be in our life groups, how small and intimate the church used to be, whatever families come in or have moved away, whoever our teaching pastor has been, that God is the one leading our church. We are his bride, and he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we plow looking forward to his lead, we don't look backward to the good old days. We're thankful for them, thankful and celebrate them, but we look forward. That's not always easy to do. 
but there's wisdom in that. Second point is wisdom sees wrongness when others see rightness. Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 18 says, In the meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Verse 15, Solomon notices something that you've probably noticed. Sometimes life is unfair. Solomon has seen good people die early and wicked people become old wicked people. And at the center of all religion and most philosophies sits this idea of karma, right? When whatever good you put out there, you'll get good back. And whatever bad you get, you know, hey, you play with fire, sometimes you get burned. And if you walked up to the average Christian or anybody in our church and said, hey, do you believe in karma? And we're like, man, get that witchcraft away. Like, I believe in the Bible. I know enough about Christianity. Of, like, that's, we, don't, we don't hold to that. But if we pay attention to how we speak and, and how we act, sometimes karma very much fits into our worldview. I mean, ha- haven't you ever seen something bad happen to someone and kind of taken a step back and go, and they had it coming, Right? Or something bad happened to somebody who's good, and you're like, how could that happen to them? Didn't God see all the ways that they were faithful? It's karma. And Solomon's saying, man, even though the world sees that as their operating system, and that seems very much like a rightness, wisdom clearly sees something is wrong. Karma's broken because oftentimes the opposite happens. And then he goes on in verse 16 and 18 to talk about not being over-righteous or over-wise. I mean, some of us are like, man, that's my life verse. Just be okay. Just be good enough. Like, I'll, I'll take that. Because doesn't it seem like on the surface he's, he's getting at, like, just be righteous in moderation? Like, you know, check off enough boxes, but like, don't get too crazy. Like, Jesus is the only way? I mean, come on. Like, but that's not what he's saying. He's getting at, he's attacking something. He's saying there exists in the world a wrongness and a certain kind of rightness. There's a righteousness that is wrong. It's self-righteousness. When the righteousness you are after or think you have comes from your behavior and not from God, if your identity flows from what you do, what kind of parent you are, how hard of a worker, what you can accomplish, and by your behavior, instead of being a child of God who has only been welcomed into the family of God because of his love, mercy, and forgiveness, then what you have is a self-righteousness. And as the verse says, you'll destroy yourself. Jesus told a parable in Luke 18 about a tax collector and a Pharisee. Maybe you're familiar with it. He says, to some who were confident, so he's talking to people who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance, couldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Isn't it hard 
to tell when we're being self-righteous? Because when we hear it, we're like, oh yeah, I'm thinking about that other person who needs to hear this. We're not thinking about ourselves. One way we can tell, like this parable shows, is we compare ourselves to other people, our behavior to others. Comparison fans this flame of, of self-righteousness, and it's tough. We've got to be sober-minded about this because we live in a culture of comparison. Times, 100 most influential people, the best jobs for 2023, the best name to name your baby. Social media just like exacerbates this problem. We are driven towards comparison. We compare ourselves in upward ways, when we look at those above us that have something we don't have and it creates in us this jealousy in our hearts, man, if I could just have more of what they have or if I could just taste, you know, what they, you know, a little bit of their life, who do you look at that way? And we, we have this downward comparison that we see in Luke and it causes us to be arrogant and proud, proudful, prideful, sorry. I can't believe that they don't do what I do. And it centers around more behavior oftentimes. This family, they don't raise their kids like, this family, they let their kids, I can't believe they, and the unspoken in that is, they're not like me, they're not like us. And I, I think that's why most Americans, maybe some of us, really find it challenging to believe that we need a savior. Because we look down on people who do horrible things and we go, that's evil. And I don't do it, so I'm not evil. But we miss out on God's perfect standard, applying that to ourselves, where we all have fallen short. Self-righteousness highlights other people's shortcomings but blinds us from our own sin. So why are you and God okay? Or how are you trying to be okay with God? Does it have anything to do with your behavior? or the boxes you're checking. Because that's not where you find righteousness. Romans 5, for if because one man's trespasses, talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through one man, Jesus Christ. It's only received as a, great, as a gift by God through faith in Jesus. So in both karma and self-righteousness, wisdom sees a certain wrongness in that rightness. Last point, the wisdom grows in humble hearts. Wisdom grows in humble hearts. Uh, chapter 7, verses 20 through 24 reads, Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your own heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. But this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? A wise man understands the sinfulness of man, yes, but also their own sinfulness. In 23 and 24, Solomon admits his own limitations in pursuing wisdom, which when he does it, it actually increases his wisdom. And then he says, listen, you can learn, you and I can learn a lot about the status of our spiritual life by this test. How you react when people criticize you. Let's just use that as a test. You and I can really test our own spiritual life when we look at how we react when people criticize us. When your servant, it says, or insert coworker, family member, friend, stranger, anyone curses you, the 
the ultimate test of whether or not your righteousness is self-produced or spirit-produced, how easily do you forgive? I mean, we might have a lot of other things down pat externally, right? You know, I've got the, you know, the Christian t-shirt. I got the Christian bumper sticker. Like, you know, my kids are in Christian school. Like, we don't cuss. I got the biggest King James Bible out there. But Solomon's like, no, 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 the real test. Let's see if it's spirit-produced or self-produced. How do you react when people curse you? And this word is about somebody wounding you so deeply that it sets you back emotionally. Like it hurts deeply. So much so that it feels like a curse has been pronounced on you. Do you have you felt that? Are you feeling that now? Here's the test of your righteousness. Can you forgive? Christian author Chip Ingram um, has, has said there's three stages to forgiveness. And I found this helpful if, if we're like, okay, so how do I start? Where do I get traction in this area? First step is to forgive as an act of the will. So this step says, I don't want to. I don't feel like doing it, but I'm going to. <laughs> because God says, I know this stage. Have you ever felt betrayed and, and you think, man, like I was right and they wronged me. Like everything I feel, sometimes I have to fight against what I'm feeling in order to do this. Stage two says, forgiving recognizes it's a, it's a process. That over time, our emotions that we so strongly felt in stage one start to recede. Stage three is where somebody's actually forgiven where you see that person and you genuinely don't hold a grudge and you can actually hope for what's best in your life to come. So do you have a grudge against anybody? Has it become normal for you to just, in your mind, be so against a person? To think less of this person? Maybe when they're not around to use harsh words, try to tear this person down? You undermine their reputation? Or maybe you just shut down and withdraw when they come around. But navigating forgiveness is difficult. It's a tough issue. But Solomon gives us a way to do that. In 22, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. To have this ability to forgive, it's rooted in humility. To know that we've sinned, we've fallen short, we've been at our worst, we've wronged other people, and ultimately sinned against a holy God. And yet we swim in an ocean of his mercy and forgiveness. So who are we to hold against this person a grudge and not forgive? The wisdom to forgive, man, that's rooted in humility. And humble hearts, wisdom grows. You're able to do this. The self-righteous person is content keeping a gap between them and the other person. Maybe they cling on. I've not done any wrong in this situation. They are entirely in the wrong. Maybe that's true. You've not done wrong in this situation, but you've done wrong. So in humility, we recognize we are forgiven, which softens us to do the same. True righteousness is rooted in Christ's forgiveness. On the cross, if anybody in human history could have ever said, I don't deserve this, I've been wronged, 
I'm entitled to better treatment. Was it not Jesus? But he came to you and to me and said, I'll take your wrongness and your sin. And he put it all on himself and went to the cross. So you don't have to produce a self-righteousness. You don't have to work for a righteousness. It is given to you freely because of his work on the cross for us. But you do have to give up your rights to hold a grudge, to carry a grudge, because our salvation, our lives, are rooted in a Savior who said, Father, forgive them. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you for letting me serve. I just want to invite you to pray with me. Father, for some reason, the song that I keep on thinking about is what a friend we have in Jesus. And I just think about what Solomon said in verse 10 about friends who come down into our messy, dirty lives and with truth love us. Who better than Jesus? God, that is Jesus, God, who didn't sweep our sin under the rug, didn't say, it's not sin, don't worry about it, I love you, but took it upon himself, said, no, it, it is keeping you from God. And I've come down to take that sin willingly to make a way for you to be right with God, to give you a righteousness that you can't work for, but I freely give. God, I just, I just want to thank you for that. God, you are a good, loving father. God, and I, I just pray that, God, as your children, that as we are confronted with your truth, that we, as we read through what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 7, God, that we latch on to something, God, that will, will help us in our daily walk. In our journey with you, God, I don't know if it's a woeful situation that we just can't get out of and we can't see wisdom. God, I don't know if it's a, a situation um, God, where we're just in our spirit, shaking our fist at you. God, I don't know if it's a situation where we need wisdom to see where we're wrong, where we thought we were right. I don't know if it's humility, God, but God, I pray for all of that, for our church and us as people. God, your word is good. It's active. It's alive, God. I pray that it would would breathe your breath in us, God, and we would walk out of here today knowing we don't have the answers in ourselves, but God, that we would look to you, the giver of all good things, on a daily basis, God, and just throughout our lives, we would trust in you, we would follow you, and as a church, we wouldn't look behind us to the good old days, but we would be so hopeful for what you have in store for us, God, that we would pray and say, God, we can't hope for or imagine things on a magnitude that you have in store for us, God, so we ask that those would be given and we provide and we work and we toil, God. But God, not so that our names will be glorified, but God, so that you would be made much of, God, in Westerville, in Columbus, Ohio, in our nation and our world, God, because you're worthy of it. So we ask all these things in your name we pray.